we look at it more as how are you operating the properties in the first place. If you don't have a lot of reserves on hand, which we always keep a good amount of reserves, even more with the mixed use because we have retail, then you might be in trouble. But because of the amount of reserves we have, we're able to be flexible and keep the tenants happy and keep our investors happy, frankly. So... Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you're thinking about investing passively in real estate and you want to learn how to evaluate a deal, I created a free guide, especially for you, that would walk you through the top five critical deal components that any passive investor must examine. You can find it on my website, ellieperlman.com. All right, so my guest today is Anthony Scandariato. Anthony is the co-founder of Red Knight Properties. And prior to that, Andy specialized in the retail space. So he acquired and developed over 100 retailers within the first years and was responsible for acquiring and managing almost 600 million of Class A office buildings. Anthony is a graduate of Cornell University and currently lives in New Jersey with his girlfriend and their bloodhound named Rosie. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks for having me, Ellie. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate? Sure, definitely. So you mentioned a little bit about my background. As you mentioned, I had some retail experience with a startup company that I helped found, which has nothing to do with commercial real estate investing, but a lot of the skills that I learned from running my own company with partners who are transferable over to real estate. So it got to a point where I wanted to make a change and I didn't want to stay in the retail space. We were selling actually consumer products, sunglasses, sweaters. And it just, to me, I wanted something that I could control my time more. And I think that real estate investing is a great way to do that. And I then wanted to learn from the best in the business. So I eventually got a full-time job for another real estate operator, sponsor, where we were buying office buildings. I was there for five and a half years and was able to help them grow their company. I guess you mentioned $600 million more under management since I was there and was able to help them grow and had a great experience. And then at the same time, I was buying some very small, like two family properties that I would flip or buy and hold that I was doing very well on return wise. And I just, I wanted something more. I wanted to take control of my time. And you talk a lot about this on your show to get into, for me, I'm a little bit younger, so I want to be on the more active side, but moving forward into my future, I want to be on the more passive side where I don't have to do as much legwork and, and whatnot to make decent passive income. Yeah, I think that's a dream of many of us. 
So, you know, I want to kind of start talking about the asset part of our show and you're investing in middle market multifamily properties, but your multifamily is not just any kind of multifamily, it's mixed use multifamily. So how is mixed use different than a pure multifamily deal when it comes to underwriting and due diligence? Yeah, so I would say that, so we buy both. So we buy traditional multifamily and mixed use. Where we've been able to create a lot of value is on the mixed use. And by mixed use, I mean, you know, ground level retail and infill location or ground level office, whatever it is. But majority of the income, let's say 70% plus is from multifamily apartments. So in terms of the due diligence process versus traditional multifamily, you still go through that same process. However, when you have commercial tenants, you really have to understand the companies that preside in these spaces. So for example, we'll have that we won't have in regular due diligence, we'll do tenant interviews. So we'll go and meet with each of the retailers and we'll have a review of their financials as well, if you can get a hold of them, especially if they're mom and pop tenants. It's kind of tough to, to get that, but we still do that. So try to do it. It's just a little bit different. We analyze the leases more. You know, it's different in terms of you really have to get specific with the retailer office tenants as opposed to an apartment is very replaceable, relatively speaking. In my buildings, we usually turn over apartments in two weeks. So for me to lose an apartment tenant, it's not a big deal. But for me to lose retail, especially we're recording this in the middle of June, you know, hopefully at the tail end of coronavirus is going to be more tough to, to keep and even attract. So you just really got to understand the companies that you're renting to. So yeah, speaking of COVID, how has mixed use performed during this pandemic? We obviously know when it comes to pure quote-unquote multifamily, we have relatively high rent collections and, you know, vacancy has not been increasing significantly like we have, you know, all feared. But with mixed use, it's a little bit different because, uh, you know, part of the income actually comes from retail, which got the hardest hit in today's economy. What are your thoughts about how mixed use are performing in today's market? Sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, when we originally underwrite our properties, whether they're mixed use or multifamily, but mixed use specifically, you know, like I said, 70% of the revenue is coming from apartments in the first place. So if we have a building where it's 60, 70% coming from the retail and there's only a couple of apartments above, we won't buy it. We won't touch it. So it's that upfront due diligence and understanding that, you know, the retail is going to be challenging long-term even if you got some decent leases in place, if they ever get up and leave, it will be challenging. Actually, we haven't really had any issues with our retailers. They've all paid throughout the crisis, even if some of them weren't even able to work you know, through government mandates physically in the space. We've always kept a good relationship with them. We, you know, we have hefty security deposits for all the retail tenants in an event like this were to happen, which it obviously did. We thankfully weren't able to, we didn't even touch the security deposits, but we, we had them. They're obviously a lot larger than normal apartments, usually in apartments month, month and a half, maybe two. Usually retail, we get maybe five or six up front. So we have a decent amount of reserves there for those tenants. But it's performed well, at least for us. It, it depends on who your tenants are. We have mostly mom and pop service-based tenants. So nail salons, hair salons, food-based. So you know, we have a grocery store, we have like an ice cream store. Anything that Amazon can't replace and disrupt, 
you should be good in the long term. And also if you're considered an essential business, which is a whole other topic, but you know, like a CVS, you know, is pretty stable. If you have an investment grade tenant, you know, like, you know, obviously Walgreens are standalone, but if you have, you know, one of those national tenants that have long-term leases, you should still be okay. But generally the rule of thumb is just, you know, if it's more than 30% of the rent roll, then we won't buy it in the first place. But the difference between multi and mixed use, at least on a cap rate or yield perspective, is usually, in my experience, it could be almost 200 to 300 basis points higher than traditional multifamily. Let's say traditional multis five or six cap, you know, mixed use. We bought in the nines and tens before in New Jersey. So it's a big difference. <laughs> so, you know, when I'm thinking about tenants that are that actually live in your multifamily properties, I understand that not everyone lost their jobs, that, you know, they have unemployment benefits, they have the stimulus checks, and people really prefer not to lose the roof above their heads and they will find ways to pay, even though not everyone can pay. But when it comes to retailers, so when it comes to, you know, some of them are gonna do well, like you mentioned probably restaurants that are doing a lot of takeouts or grocery stores that are the clear winners in in a pandemic. But what about those mom and pops, the nail salons, hair salons that can't, you know, nail salons can't be open, at least here in California. I'm not sure what the situation is in New Jersey. How are they finding the money to pay you? And isn't that a bigger risk than dealing with tenants that, that do have some sort of assistance from the government? Sure. Yeah, so the nail salons, at least in New Jersey, is actually June 22nd. We're recording this June 15th. So it's very soon. I encouraged all my tenants, regardless of what industry they were in, to apply for the PPP program, Paycheck mm-hmm. Protection. And a few of my tenants were, did receive it. They did get the assistance to kind of get through this, which is a relief on our end and a relief on their end. Unfortunately, the money runs out at some point, and it has to run out at some point. So for the tenants that are starting to reopen again, we're working out a payment plan. Like we just actually hair salon is a great example. We have their PPP ran out and obviously rent was due this month on the first. We said, all right, here's what we'll do. We're going to do half. Can you pay half? And then when you're open again, you know, pay the other half by, you know, at the end of the month and, and we'll work it out. We'll spread it out over the lease. And you can always add it to different areas of the lease when things start to really reopen again. But what I would say is we look at it more as how are you operating the properties in the first place? If you don't have a lot of reserves on hand, which we always keep a good amount of reserves, even more with the mixed use because we have retail, then you might be in trouble. But because of the amount of reserves we have, we're able to be flexible and keep the tenants happy and keep our investors happy, frankly. So, Got it. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about strategy. And I want to talk about the value add strategy that that you are implementing when you're buying real estate. So what are the top three value add strategies that you're implementing when you're purchasing a mixed use property? So very similar to traditional multifamily, maybe a little bit different. When we go into mixed use, I mean, I've been in mixed use buildings that have vacant, that had vacant retail that were able to lease up. So we look for some vacant retail as long as it makes sense. And usually what we do is we try to put it on the market before we close if it's vacant and then try to we'll basically have a tenant in hand before we close. I guess 
The other thing we would look to do is if we're buying a mixed use property with retail and they only have a year left on their lease or two years left, we'll go to them in due diligence under contract and say, hey, what would it take for you to sign a five-year lease? You know, how do we get that done? So we, and the second one would be to, how do we extend the leases if they're reasonable and good tenants? And then the third one would be the very similar to traditional multifamily. Is the retail below market? You know, how far below market are they? I've had an instance where I had a retail was paying me. It was a women's clothing store. We were paying $1,000. While we were under contract, I kind of knew that they were not going to go under. They didn't go under. It was more of a business decision for them to leave. They gave me plenty of notice that they were leaving. About three months notice, I was able to secure a new tenant. And the space was absolutely gorgeous. But pretty much turned key for 1500 So we got another 500 bucks from a new tenant. So those, those would be the three, I would say, for retail. And then obviously, the multifamily, very, you know, below market rents, which is pretty cookie cutter, make some light improvements there. Yeah. When it comes to an apartment building, then you just, if you want to implement a value-add plan, the plan is usually pretty straightforward. You come in, you paint the apartment, you remove the carpet and you put, you know, vinyl flooring or forward flooring and you replace, you know, lighting and fixtures. What do you do when it comes to a retail store? You know, how do you implement the value add plan? How do you make the store nicer? So most of it's like reconfiguring space. How do we always maximize square footage? Because that's what a lot of retailers Mm -hmm. want. You know, how do we maximize occupancy? So sometimes we're taking down walls, you know, just regular drywall. Or if the market calls for smaller tenants, you know, and we have a large space, we'll, you know, basically put up a wall and, and then, you know, add two doors or whatever it is, break up the space to attract smaller tenants if that's what the market calls for. The buildings that we bought, they haven't really been in like shell condition. They've been in somewhat turnkey. So we kind of make it show ready, very similar to multifamily. We'll, you know, we'll take the carpets out, you know, old green carpets out, we'll rip those out, we'll put hardwood because frankly, retail, especially like the smaller businesses, they still want the hardwood floors. They still want open space. It's very similar to an apartment. However, I think the difference is we try not to spend that type of money on our retail space up front. We try to, you know, we try to do some creative marketing online and see if we get interest. And then when people come, we'll tell them, oh, this is what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. Because with retail, you just never know when you're going to get the next tenant. So for you to invest that much money and then wait a year to get a tenant usually doesn't really work financially. So we try to have tenants in hand first, if we can. That's pretty brilliant. I'm actually doing the same thing today where I know that a lot of sponsors have paused renovating, you know, they stopped renovating their units because frankly, it's harder to lease units and you just want someone, you know, to occupy a unit and pay you rent. So you usually, you know, right now, a lot of Sponsors are keeping their units classic, like we call it, so unrenovated. And we kind of switch to a model that I call renovation on demand. So when a tenant comes, we'll show them how we have the model unit that is renovated, and then we show them the non-renovated unit. And we say, you have two options. This is, you know, it's going to cost you, let's say, $900 for the one bedroom, you know, the classic unit, and then, you know, $1,100, whatever it is for the renovated units. And we were actually very surprised that a lot of tenants preferred in today's market 
to go with a renovated unit. So we were able to increase rents between 10% to 28%. We got 28% rent increases on renovated units. So we didn't just say, you know what, we're just going to get whoever we can and stop renovation. I think this is kind of what you do. You say, hey, it's going to take me, you know, a while until I'm going to get a, you know, a tenant, a retail tenant. I'm just going to make sure that there's someone there to sign on the lease before I'm going to put in the money and make all the changes. So I think this is pretty brilliant. It's a sure. simple concept, but pretty smart. Yeah. And it's, it's similar to uh, just think about an office building, you know, especially in this environment. Some of the markets where I used to invest in my previous company, you'll have vacancy rates in the submarket 30-40%. So what's the incentive for an owner to go in there and make a unit, you know, absolutely beautiful when yeah. the market's not there? So yeah, exactly. it's kind of similar, but a little bit different on the apartments. So, yeah. yeah. And do you do anything differently with the value add plan in today's market? Something similar to what you do on your apartments. You know, we usually, we have two ads online, one renovated, one unrenovated, two different price points. And then when they get there, we figure out what they want. So very, very similar. I don't think the value add plan has changed because of COVID at all, to be honest. In fact, on our apartments, our rents have been the same. If not, they only went up because in, in the markets where we invest, it's mostly workforce housing, you know, kind of class B, C, B minus, C plus product, you know, garden style, two, three story walk up buildings, non elevator, where, you know, we have people coming in that, you know, are used to paying close to Manhattan rents where, where I invest. And, you know, you're looking at two bedrooms that could be $4,000, you know, close to Manhattan. So, you know, the area we reinvest is mostly anywhere from 1000 to $1,500. So although you might be an hour outside of Manhattan, still people do it. So the rents have actually gone up a little bit just because there's not a lot of supply out because more people are delaying buying a home or the white collar workforce that got laid off and they are getting unemployment benefits. Like you said, it's going to run off, but it's not, as, it's not even nearly as much as what they're making before, but they still need a place to live. So we're getting some spillover from there and it has a positive effect on our rents. We'll see how long it lasts, but it's, we're still hitting our numbers and the business plan hasn't really changed. That's great to hear. So Anthony, let's talk a little bit about financing. And this is the third part of our show when we're going to talk about process. So can you walk me through the process of financing mixed use properties and how that process is different than just regular multifamily financing? Sure. Yeah. So for, you know, traditional multi, obviously you're aware Ellie, Fannie, Freddie, uh, you can get bridge debt. On the mixed use, you can still get Fannie or Freddie, but they have very strict debt service coverage requirements. And I think the retail, don't, don't call me on this, but I think it can't be more than 20% of the gross revenue uh, for an agency product. So you can still get it. And I think for the time being, they're taking out any retail income and they're making sure you can debt service coverage at one, three, one, four, let's just say, or maybe one and a quarter to get 70, 75%. That's the other thing on leverage. They'll, they'll definitely chop you down from traditional multifamily. I would say your best bet for mixed use, depends how big the project is, but it would probably be a local bank. Local bank lenders are the best. That's what we've used. You can still do the agency. You can still get bridge debt. It's going to be more expensive and harder. I think the local areas, you know, because the local banks are so invested in the communities that they serve, 
that they want to see retail. They want to see this mixed environment. They want to see apartments too, that they'll understand it better and they'll be more willing to lend at reasonable terms. They're still going to require reserves as they are now, you know, with the COVID-19 crisis, but it's going to be very similar to what you saw pre-COVID in terms of leverage and maybe slightly even better pricing. Got it. And you were talking about 1.3, 1.4, you know, DSCR, which is debt coverage ratio. Can you just talk a little bit about what that means? Definitely. So debt service coverage ratio is, is basically, you know, if you're at a 1.0, it's a break even. So you can pay your your income, covers your expenses, and then pays your your loan. So that's that's basically a 1.0. So they want to see, you know, more than that, you can cover more. On a traditional multifamily, it's usually for agency debt, it's usually one, two to one and a quarter. Mixed use, it'll be a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. All right. There's, because the lenders are perceiving the retail tenants a bit riskier because it's, you know, obviously harder to replace them. It takes time to, you know, bring another tenant, another retail tenant, and especially in today's market. Sure. What's the the number one mistake that you see investors make when they finance properties today, especially when it comes to multifamily or mixed use? Mistake, I would say being over leveraged is a big mistake. I think that still the market is definitely hot. Like you know, you said multifamily hasn't really changed too much in terms of pricing. Who knows if that's going to change? But I wouldn't want to be in a position where you're upside down. And I'm talking you know, 80% plus leverage on buildings plus capital expenses that are significant, which puts you at, you know, sometimes 85, 90%. And if your value goes down 25% after COVID, you're, you're in a really bad position. So I would say being over leverage is the number one mistake. All right. I think it's interesting that you're saying it because we know that pre, you know, before 2007, 2008, a lot of real estate investments were over leveraged. And then in today's environment, I think in the past decade, the one big thing was not to be over leveraged. And if you're taking a, an agency debt, then they're not going to extend a loan for 90% loan to value. It's going to be between 65 and 75, maybe, maybe 80%. How do you think people can over leverage, especially in today's environment? Yeah, it's going to happen again. <laughs> it's a credit cycle, it, you know. So once the markets kind of free up a little bit, it, it it just it's cyclical. So it will happen again. Right now, it's still available, obviously at a higher cost. There are certain situations where it could be appropriate, whether it's gap financing and you're going to fill it in after you close very quickly. There's appropriate situations for it, but I wouldn't want to be in that position. <laughs> yeah. So you could, it's still available, but it's very hard to get now. It's only lent. It's definitely not lent on mixed use, as far as I understand. Multifamily might be a little easier to get, but I just, it's, it's going to happen again. And there are lenders who, I, I don't have to name them on the show. I, I might get in trouble for doing that. But I know, I know lenders who will lend 85, 90, 90%, but the rate's going to be much higher. And they're going to fee you to death with their servicing charges and they did, their goal is to take your property at the end of the day, just to be frank. So just be careful. You know, if you, if you think it's an attractive term sheet, it's probably not at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Predatory lending 101.
All right. Well, great, Anthony. Thank you so much. I think we've arrived to the lightning round questions phase. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So, Anthony, what's your favorite hobby? Running. I'm going running a lot. Oh, interesting. Interesting. We're not going to get into the whole, are you running with a mask or not? Because I've heard, you know, various ideas and thoughts about it. But interesting. Running is good. I I should be doing more of that. What is the one thing that people don't know about you? I guess maybe I used to be a a swimmer. Mm. Most people don't know that. Nice. Do you swim a lot these days or, well, probably not during COVID? Not as much. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So what do you wish you had known when you just started out in real estate? So not be afraid to partner. You know, I bought my first deal myself, which still was a great deal, but I would have been maybe a little more level-headed if I had a partner. Got it. Interesting. What's your number one advice to someone who wants to scale their business or scale their portfolio? Partnering. <laughs> Partnering is, is key. All right. Well, thank you, Anthony, for you know giving us a little bit of your time today and sharing your knowledge about multifamily, mixed-use, financing, and value add. Where, If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Sure. Yeah. Great question. So they can go to our website and download. We have a free special report, which is how to leave your nine to five through financial independence. It's a quick ebook, so to speak, rednightproperties.com. It'll pop right up when you go on, type in your name and, and email and you'll get it. And then you'll be essentially on the list. So find us there. And then I'm on pretty much every social media platform. You can just type in Red Knight Properties or my name, Anthony Scandariato, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. All right, Anthony, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, Ali, thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.